Scratchcast. Hey, Mick. Hi, Craig. How you doing, bud? I'm good. It's good to be back. Feels like it's been a while. It has been a while, but it takes some time to get these babies yeah. up and running, you know? I know. We have another reason to drink tonight. Yes, we do. Dogfish Head. 90-minute IPA for me. That a new one for you? No, I've had it before. <clears throat> and it's, it's, it's high quality. It's got a nice finish, that's for sure. It's a little darker than I prefer sometimes. Dogfish Head. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm back to the same old 805. Yeah. You know. The old standby. The old standby. I haven't been going with the Coors too much recently. This actually kind of reminds me of that now. Now that I've had your 805, this has a a dark feel. You might like this. Yeah. I don't know. I'm good good with my IPAs. The more you pay doesn't always mean you're going to feel better about it and it's going (laughs) to taste any better. That's for sure. Anyway, today is a very special scratch cast for me because not long ago, I ran into a gentleman who to me, and I might be embarrassing him right now and i don't really care he didn't look embarrassed i I played with a lot of fucking good drummers right and when i met this gentleman i noticed some of the most nuanced sensual intricate sensual delicate and punchy and powerful and creative work i've heard ever yeah and so i'm very proud to say today that we have nick gaffney from Cairo Knife Fight. That's me. Scratch cast. I am here. So hopefully that wasn't uh, too understated. No, I mean, I've heard far worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, Good um, to see you again. Yeah. Yeah, the party was fun when you were here. I yeah, like it that. was. Last thing I remember really was jamming in here with you <laughs> when I was far too drunk to be doing that. No, um, I was too. But you know what? That was the highlight. Hi, Bowie. That was uh, the highlight for me too because... And I've, I've listened to it, and certainly there are some oh, things God. that I would have done a little differently. But at some point, I'm going to put a mix together, and we're going we're gonna to go over it. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm getting restless again in my musical world. Mm-hmm. And that spoke to me that night. Oh. I'd love to do more of that. Yeah, doing it sober would, would be a lot of fun. <laughs> I was start. having those moments where it was like uh, the, um, the software program was glitching in my head and it would just you know you try to do something and, and your body and brain were disconnected by the alcohol and it'd be like no we're, yeah. not, we're not going to do that we're going to pick up again after that uh, <laughs> but my, my favorite comment after we had finished it though was um you know there are other chords you guys could have gone to four or five or something yeah <laughs> that's great i do remember that we were definitely monotone oh yeah yeah but we played the fuck out of that c chord <laughs> how fun mm-hmm. i must have left just a tad bit too early. Yeah, I think I you did. That. Yeah, because that was also the time when somebody was saying, uh, "Yeah, Mick, somebody's back there, like yelling, shut the fuck up.'" Oh, <laughs> Did you guys, because I don't think we shut any doors or windows or anything oh, like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, that was a highlight, man. I, I totally, and that that is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, we without changing any chords. I mean, you know, the rhythms just change slightly. Sometimes they change drastically. It was beautiful, man. I love playing with you. Yeah, thank you. It was fun, definitely. And we met. Uh, as as a lot of people may know, I'm, I play with uh, Tilly, the wonderful Tilly, and uh, Nick joined us, and we played a few gigs, and uh, it's made all the difference in the world to me. I I just enjoy it more than I ever have. Oh, great! And, uh, yeah, it has know. been some some fun shows. Yeah, I I totally feel a connection with you, so I hope you love me too. I do. <laughs> I I definitely want to go go back to the beginning with you because you have a long and storied career. Obviously, you're a New Zealander, mm-hmm. another wonderful New Zealander. Like all the New Zealanders I've met, both of them mm-hmm. are fantastic. Right. Who was the other one? Grant Morris. He worked oh, with right. us on our first record. He got a start, or at least made some money, on a Thomas Dolby record that he worked on. Really sweetheart of a guy. Hmm. And, and fun to work with, creative. Producer? Genuine. Engineer? The writer. Oh, oh. Yeah, and right now I think he's in New Orleans doing a like a podcast or a radio show or something. But hi, Grant. 
It sounds like you started out at a very early age and, and found a lot of success in New Zealand. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the beginning? The very beginning? Okay. <laughs> like all the way back? Well, let me throw this out. What was the first music that caught your ear? My, uh, my parents are massively into music. They're not musicians, but they, uh, they used to play a lot of stuff when I was a kid. And they, they're really into Irish music. My family's, my mother's English. And um, they moved out from England to New Zealand, and she met my dad out out there. So they'd play a lot of Clancy Brothers and things like oh, that. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Clancy Brothers, Tommy Macon, a little bit of Joseph Locke and people like that. That uh-huh. was the first stuff that I ever heard because you know that and Don McLean. They love right. Don McLean. Primarily acoustic music, then, yeah. For the most part. Oh yeah, obviously huge Beatles fans and all that kind of stuff yeah. too. But that's what they'd play every family get together. Now, did the the rhythmic intricacies attract you, or what? What were you listening to? If you, I don't can know, recall? it was just it was. I think it was, it was just the way that that music kind of created a community out of the yeah. people who were there in the room, and I think that's what it was. And initially, yeah. I wasn't too concerned about any other elements of it. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, at the age of what four? Yeah, four, five, six. <laughs> I started drum lessons at six, wow, so nice. that's, that's when it started um, becoming more focused on what's actually happening. Now, who was uh, a drummer that you recall from from those days that you enjoyed listening to? The first stuff I think I ever, the first record I got was Born in the USA. So that's Max Weinberg. Yeah, I think okay. so. Hearing hearing that, um, you know, the end of the end of Born in the USA. There's that bit where he's basically yeah. just wailing on yeah. the drums right. and it's right. just taking ages to go. It just like takes it out of control. Yeah, that was one of the first things I remember like hearing that being thinking like what what is happening there? Yeah. yeah. And I was pretty young at that point. Um that was before CDs, so it was the only the only way you could get it was vinyl and my dad bought that for me for Christmas. You're still pretty young by the way. Just letting you know. Well, yeah. Mm. I was just gonna say, I would think I was in my thirties when that came out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Okay, is there some like drummer who you know was doing the crab and in a suit and tie and everything? It was, no, it was in the eighties that record, right? Right. Yeah. Wasn't it? It was an eighties record. Yeah. Every, yeah. yeah. So sure I would have. I probably would have. You know, been somewhere between five and ten. Eighty-two or eighty-three, somewhere in that era. Yeah. Oh right. Yeah. So yeah. I would have been like six or seven. So then, who did you listen to after that? I mean, did your taste evolved. I got. Uh, I'm, I had this drum teacher who was like one of those guys. Um, he he taught everything. He couldn't really play anything, but mm-hmm. he taught everything. And I had him for maybe five years, where he really just fostered an interest more than mm-hmm. anything else. Five years is a long time to stick with the teacher. Yeah, yeah he just came to the school, you know. Oh, okay. And it meant that you didn't really learn a hell of a lot, but you you played a lot and you mm-hmm. listened to a lot of things. And then I actually got a proper teacher. This guy, Stephen Money. Which is such a great name for a yeah, drum teacher, sure Mr. Money. He was my <laughs> he was my drum teacher, and he was the first guy to be like, "We're going to actually start listening to proper drummers here and figure out what's going on." And he made me a mixtape that was everything he thought I should be listening to. It was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about and that. And Rush. Yeah. So Neil Peart, obviously, and then John Bonham. Mm-hmm. So he kept you in the rock domain the whole time. Yeah, long. well, I was studying that book, that um, Carmine Peace book, <laughs> no way. Realistic well, Rock. There's a connection here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was the book that I had, which is a veritable Bible. It's, it's an incredible resource. I mean, there's probably been plenty of things written that are, that are more comprehensive and maybe a little better now, but back then it, was, it had covered everything you would want to figure out at a young age. And so I had, yeah, it was all rock stuff based on that. I don't think I heard anything else until, you know, later on in high school when I started to hear, you know, other other kind of genres. I guess I have to give Carmine a lot of credit. I mean, we pick on him a lot about that kind of stuff. But my first book was Mel Bay, right, for guitar. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, ding, ding. oh, my God. I just yeah. put it away, you know. And so Carmine right. spoke to people who didn't care about any of that. Yeah. They didn't want to sit there. and. I can remember that. Co- I can see that cover in my head, that pink cover right. with him with his crazy handlebar mustache right. leaning over his enormous drum kit but the content of it really made yeah. a difference to a lot of oh people. yeah man i mean i i asked for a, a signed uh photo from that book i was when i was a kid i'm maybe how old would i have been maybe 12 or something uh-huh. i wrote to the address listed there um, in the back which was i guess was some management or publisher you know and that was snail mail days and so it took about eight months to come back and it was like a return to sender Oh, like the place obviously wasn't there, but it was you know it was an address in Hollywood, I think. And, yeah, you know I didn't know where that was, and it was just this crazy <laughs> thing. 
So nice. yeah, that book was huge. And actually, a friend of mine not long ago sent me a message on Facebook saying that he'd found that book at a garage sale, and it was my one. It had it my name written book. in it. He's a really? guy I went to high school with, and he's like, "Did you you had this book?" And I was like, "Yeah, I had that book." And he goes, "Because it's got your name in it." And he goes, "There's all these holes drilled in the side of it." And I'm like, "Yeah, because my dad drilled holes through it so I could put it in a ring binder, yeah, like, so I could carry it everywhere and keep yeah. it safe." And uh, so yeah, it was my my original book. Wow. Because mm. my dad, you know, made me get it laminated and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. like on the outside, so it was protected. Because you know, he's like, "If I'm going to buy this for you, you're going to have it." So by All that way. time you were you were already reading then. Yes, yeah, uh, Stephen Money taught me to read yeah. through that book. Mm-hmm. Like I could already read the basics of um, uh, notation, but this was the first stuff like actual reading drum parts mm-hmm. on a on a on a full drum stave rather than just reading rhythmic lines on a snare drum. And that has served you to this day, and you can still are you fluent at this point? Yeah, I'm not as good as I as I was. I went yeah, and got a music degree. So I did a lot of, um, and that's when I was a jazz drummer exclusively for years. So I did a lot of big band and stuff like that too. So I read a lot. So I could read Once Upon a Time very well. Mm -hmm. Now it's not so good. Yeah, it's use it or lose it. Yeah. I mean, I can still obviously figure something out if I get a five minutes, but it's not the same kind of like crazy being able to read fly shit kind of thing that people can do. And it's not necessarily... You know, it's not so important anymore. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Can, you know, the guys back in you know Steve Gadd's heyday, they were reading all the time in sessions. Mm-hmm. Now no one does because it's Pro Tools. It's learn apart. We'll right. probably comp you anyway. We want to get through ten tracks today. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So it's a different world. Totally. So that's school. And at what point did you? I mean, what happens when you join your first rock band? Yeah, we were called uh, the Rave. Oh, actually, you no. Know, the first band I was in. I was that kid at school who was 11 playing in the band with the 17-year-olds. Yeah, of course. Mm. So I did that, and we were called White Light. Nice. And we entered the local... In New Zealand, actually, there's a really uh, amazing high school band competition called Rock Quest that back in those days, it was in its infancy. Now it's massive. People come out of it and get record deals right away with oh, yeah. labels in New Zealand. Deals. And you know, everyone who comes out of it is actually really great musicians. Mm-hmm, and right. they, um, they go on to... There's a band over here called Broods, who are killing it? They're produced by the same guy that did Lord, another New Zealander, and they won Rock Quest. And then the next thing we knew, they were here in America. Yeah. So everything's changed a lot. But we did that, and then my first actual band, that kind of live and die thing, was a band called The Rave with these two other guys. One of which who went on to become an electroacoustic composer, and the other one I'd lost track of. But that was the first kind of real all for one, one for all kind of thing. Probably about fifteen, I think. Right, and and what kind of uh ceilings did you guys push did you you met with we just played around town really yeah okay you know and did a bunch of recordings and things like that but then i went to jazz school so that kind of meant that i went in that direction stayed with the band i still loved to do it but you know i was doing gigs for people then that's when i started becoming professional so i had less time for that band and everyone kind of went their own way and yeah and i'm you're gonna have to forgive me because i always thought of it as Christchurch, and that's where you're from Mm -hmm. and that's on the south island yeah Right. That's the major city in the South Island. Well, I mean, it's obviously, since it pretty much fell over in the earthquake a few years ago, oh, it's, it's yeah, less of it around yeah, right. than it was, but it's coming back, I think. Okay, so then uh, from the rave, you evolve into... I became a jazz Nazi. You know, you go to jazz school, yeah. you hear your first Philly Joe record, and you start listening to Miles, and then all of a sudden, it's more just that you become obsessed with this thing yeah. that, you, that you've never heard before. Like, I'd heard Art Blakey and people like that, and I'd, I'd played in brass bands, actually, because I could use the rehearsal space if I joined the band and I only had to play, like, a few times a year. And it was good right. reading, and I'd play tuned percussion and things like that with them. And they had a kit all set up, so you are just good to go. Yeah, and I could, you know, I learned the basics of... Um, marimbas and xylophones and timpani and things like that there which was cool because I played in some orchestras down there as well and I went to jazz school and it was just like this is astonishing this Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and all that kind of stuff that mm-hmm. became my life for a number of years that's all I did and yeah. you, are you listening to the records or we had guest uh, lectures from you know we had a, we had a couple of New York based trumpet players they were like religious figures to us because they were real deal guys right. from and they're, they're on the roads so and they just stop into the school no they or... would come down there for a full year wow and like okay. you know the school was really proactive about that because back wow. then it was you know you're talking in the 90s mm. so there's no internet there's nothing like that really it's kind yeah. of just beginning and this was still home and he's, he's yeah in yeah wow it was, it was a school started by my one of my dad's oldest friends actually he went to high school with this guy and this dude, Neil Picard was his name, spent 
about a decade trying to convince the Department of Education to let him open this place. Mm-hmm. People were like, what are you talking about? It's a jazz school. Yeah, no why one's would you do that? Wouldn't take off, yeah. No, and now it's enormous right? For, for what it is. It, it took a long time and it's been going 25, maybe 30 years now. Wow. You ever think about going back and doing your own appearance? I Actually, I taught there for a while after I left. I came wow. back and would do some, um, some of the, the graduate students yeah. doing kind of their final year projects. I'd, I'd work with them and things like that. It's, it's a pretty incredible place. And okay. it was just remarkable that it was my dad's oldest <laughs> high school wow. friend from yeah. this little yeah. tiny town in the South Island called Timaru where they lived. Uh-huh. Do you get back often? Um, I've actually been back... I went back last year to visit some family that I hadn't seen in a while. So, yeah, I mean... Once a year or so? Or if I'm, if I'm lucky. It's a bit yeah. more difficult now because it's obviously it's expensive. and Yeah, it's a long oh, flight yeah. Yeah. from L.A. to... It's a commitment. Yeah. yeah. What is it, like 22 hours? It's about 11 hours to Auckland. And then from there, there'd be like another... Now you got to wait get your next flight and the flight from Auckland to Christ is only an hour and a half but it will just take for it takes a long time to get down and by the time you get there you're cross-eyed a little tricky yeah. to navigate yeah but we're we're just used to that because going anywhere except Australia from New Zealand takes forever right going yeah. to England from New Zealand is is a literally a 24-hour trip because it's like 11 to 12 hours to here and then 11 hours from here wow so well, that's spe- a long time speaking of tangents I mean nobody has traveled more than Captain Cook what does Captain Cook mean to you well, he's kind of he's a polarizing figure down where we're from because he obviously is. he was, in some ways, he was our version of Columbus, where he did come down there and he kind of really fucked some shit up down yeah, there. Yeah, he did. And you know, he, he sort of discovered New Zealand for for the white man, but the, even that's contentious. But yeah, this these days there's a growing movement to celebrate the day he was murdered in the islands. Oh, is that right? Yeah. More than there's anything else, we actually don't wow. have a day that celebrates him. We Appearing. Have, yeah, we have a national holiday, which is Waitangi Day, which is the day that the Crown signed the treaty with the Māori people, which okay. then they went on to just completely ignore. And I'm I'm referencing uh, Blue Latitude right. by Tony Horowitz. It's, it's an amazing book, and he's opening my eyes a lot to I know you know, that. That, that whole experience. Yeah, it's a wonderful book, and, and he... He sort of expresses it in the same way, you know, where this could have been a sort of majestic gathering of, of new peoples and it could have been amazing and it just all went south. <laughs> mm. And Yeah, you I mean, know, I'm, I'm certainly no expert on it, but it's yeah. it's a pretty classic colonial story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's just, you know, finding these islands and planting flags everywhere. And, you know, he hasn't really doesn't have the notoriety of a lot of people but for the travels and it's just a fascinating story because by the time you're three months out on one of these boats you've got scurvy and you've got sores and your right. teeth are falling out yeah. and you know i mean it's it's a pretty fascinating story they were definitely fascinating men no matter what their kind of legacy is yeah i had to do that though to travel yeah. like that yeah months oh yeah or longer years, years. well i mean the the native people of new zealand um the maori people the, the current thinking is that they came down from, um, I believe, sort of the Hawaiian Islands area. And so they're traveling down in, in Waka, basically, boats that are not the feats of engineering that long boats were. Mm-hmm. They're traveling that distance yeah. and somehow ending up in New Zealand. I guess a lot of them didn't make it, but the ones that did, I mean, they, they arrived in New Zealand and, and took it over. And it's a pretty remarkable thing to have been doing. They're there for... Around 800 years, I think, before anyone else showed up. Well, that um, that confirms everything this guy is saying because he, Tony Horowitz, talks to <clears throat> just seemingly random people and they all have a view on Cook. He's well known down where we are. Well, there's one of the tangents I was talking about. Mm. So now now you're in jazz. You're how old at this point? Oh, this is, uh, <coughs> I left school early and went there. So I was about 16 when I went to the school. So you left regular. Yeah, I left at the high school a year before you normally would. And um, now you're in basically in jazz like school. a yeah. of college, and it's a pretty new school, so you're helping to... Yeah, it's probably been around about a decade before I get mm. there, I guess. Oh, but okay. That becomes just sort of every waking minute is in that place, practicing and right. playing with people. And that was probably the greatest thing about it was that you were able to play with all these like-minded people. And right. I was lucky that there were some incredibly talented people when I was there, extraordinary musicians. Yeah. Some of whom have gone on to make careers and some have ended up doing other things. But it was an incredible place to be. So you could practice four or five hours a day and then play with these other people. And the school life, it's much harder for kids now when I'm, I'm there seeing what they do. That Their workload had to increase a lot because obviously education um, standards increased mm-hmm. within the government and they were demanding more from the school. When we were there, you kind of, 
I didn't do much. I did enough to get by, but I didn't have to do that much to get by because I was spending all my time playing. A little harder to do that now. Like they have to do some pretty incredibly demanding courses now and they have to do well in them or they get the boot. Yeah. I had the same experience in college. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go to your classes, but I've got rehearsal. I've got a gig. Yeah. I'm going on the road. Yeah. Don't quite have time for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. School is not my priority. So how long are we there? It's a three-year program. And some people take longer, but I just went straight through in the three years and graduated. Are you forming your band at this point, or are you no. just playing? What, with... were you, what was your in your head at that point when you graduated, your direction? I just wanted to be a jazz drummer. I wanted yeah. to be one of those guys in New York, which looking back on it now is an, it's just an incredible idea because it's you probably couldn't choose a more difficult musical career path to get into. There's no, no right. money in it. No, if you're not Miles Davis. you're Well, especially you back know. in that era, too, that time frame. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, obviously, there are some people who do okay out of it, but it's a small yeah. musical market compared it to is. a lot of other things. But you know, it's all I wanted to do. Was your goal to come to America and be that, a studio jazz musician? Yeah, that that's the, what I wanted to do. And yeah. it was always one of those things that I had a lot of friends who did it, and they and we'd all figure you know talk about how people had gotten to America because mm. getting in this country isn't easy. You know, some of them would go to the New School or the Manhattan School of Music or whatever and study there. But that was like, you know, you need 30 grand a year to do yeah. that. Mm-hmm. You have to have all the money for your ACOM sorted out or they won't let you in. So there were all these incredible scams that friends of ours would have done where they, they got sort of 50 grand off all their families, put it in their bank account. Basically, you had to take a snapshot of it, get a bank statement saying, here's the money. Then they'd give it all back, come into America and get a, you know, an under the table job somewhere to try and pay their way. But that sort of didn't really happen with me. Um, I came over here and actually worked on cruise ships. Yeah. I never really got to America the way I wanted to Yeah. at that point, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, you're here now. That's yeah. the most important thing to me. Sometimes I think it would have been, if I'd been here at 20, you know, I yeah. possibly could have been here now for nearly 20 years. Things would be very different rather than arriving at 36 or whatever it was that I did. Yeah. So, But, you know, whatever. Life is, is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, that's a journey. Whereabouts in Canada? Did Vancouver. You yeah. So I was doing this boat on in Miami. It was a Carnival Cruise Lines, the fun ship, which was just... Was it fun? <laughs> it probably, if I was doing it now, it probably would be. It was 18 to 24-year-old spring breakers oh, just gosh. getting so absolutely... It was chaos. Oh, so you're playing rock. Yeah. No, we were a jazz. Oh, it was jazz. We were a jazz okay. band. We'd play in the dining room. Then we'd play in, in one of the atriums. I, was on a, I had a six-month contract. I lasted six weeks. It's like, I just hate this. I'm getting yeah. off. It's um, fascinating thing a lot of people out of my school go to those things it's just like a production line out of my particular school they've got an arrangement i think now with carnival Carnival where they send dozens of students over good gig you know yeah i had a friend of mine playing guitar on a cruise ship um and once he was through with the first year he had to completely stop drinking altogether and just yeah he said it was just it was fun but it was a shit show at the same time man when we were there it's um 75 cent American beers yeah. in the crew bar. So some people are just getting plowed. 20 bucks could potentially kill you. Yeah. And uh, there were some people there who's, who were, like there was some incredible characters there. Like, there was one guy, he was a, um, I think he was only maybe in his 40s, um, played solo piano, and he was your classic neurotic kind of New York, Jewish guy, like he had the curly hair, he had the glasses. He was really kind of like, like, like a Woody Allen character. He was convinced he could never get off the boat because he'd been there for so long. He's like, I can't live <laughs> right in the world. Someone cleans my cabin for a buck every day. I get fed. I don't have to do anything about that. You know, you get paid in cash and it's tax free. So Three hots handy. in a cot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like a home this is home yeah, this is home that was yeah. it he and i think he'd been there for years and i had some friends who stayed on those boats for maybe another 10 years after i left they'd do contracts come home and then go back and do more and i think he was still there when they finished you know and there were loads of guys like them you know there was these there was the reggae band from st lucia who were just screwing every girl they could find oh hell yeah that's and, why they're there you know, they were like sort of really handsome 21-year-old, right. like, you know, St. Lucian guys, and they were just, you know, they, they speak Creole. Right, and so it's just charming. <laughs> yeah, everywhere. totally. And they're playing by the pool oh, every day. Yeah, of it, was, course. it was just classic. <laughs> it was it, every cliche you can imagine. Oh, People hell. fell off the boat. Jeez. Someone died on one of the ones I was on. Some mm-hmm. guy had a heart attack and died. Someone fell off a the boat. They had to get them back on. But now what about the sicknesses? Because, I mean, that's what I always tell my wife. She wants to go on the cruise, and she's desperately trying to get me to go on a cruise. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the first handrail I touch, I'm going to freaking keel over, right? But I don't remember much of that happening way back then. I don't, 
I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, it's almost like a new thing. Like they're strange that yeah. you know, you know we're well, in the this those like, uh, just those rock cruises you might like. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. I had a friend who went out and and saw. Uh, he went on Lemmy's one. Went on Motorhead's cruise. Oh yeah, right before Lemmy died, actually. Oh. So they saw. He saw him play like every day. On yeah, it's like six days or whatever. Nice. Yeah, I guess they're fun. Well, that may very well happen next year. Yeah. Hmm. That's where you are at a still a very tender age. Yeah. And what 20, what I direction think. did you take at that point? Well, I just went off. Uh, I just got off the boat. I was like, I can't do this anymore. So the boat went to dry dock, and I just kind of bolted and went to Canada. And yeah, now you just had to get off wherever they stopped, right? Back well, in Vancouver, they stop at my. They would stop in Miami. They do East and West oh, Caribbean. Okay, okay. So, so you it was got St. back home. St. Thomas, Cozumel, all those kind of places, um, which was fun for the six weeks. They're like snorkeling and scuba diving and stuff sure. like that, but. I had to go and be with my daughter and her mother and just yeah. And in Vancouver, I was that's an incredible place to be it for is. a jazz drummer, like because I got like hugely into free jazz there. So I was I was playing anything I could, but there's a really healthy scene at like that there. Good jazz scene there. Yeah, and some guys I know that are still there that are amazing musicians, and I now I can follow them on Facebook and see what they're doing, which yeah. is really great. It is quite a melting pot there. Vancouver is, and it's a beautiful city. I mean, yeah, I loved it. We lived in a really great spot. It was um, Commercial Drive, which I think has now kind of been gentrified a little bit, but it was pretty It was pretty nice then, like kind of old Italian families, like mm-hmm. guys playing bocce ball, and it was pretty cool. And when you say free jazz, Nick, what, is, what does that mean exactly? I mean, are, do you guys well, have basic arrangements? And Some people you- would, yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of a misnomer, I guess, because some of the, even the leading lights of it, like William Parker or... Um, I don't even remember the names. Drummers like Jim Black. They were sometimes they would be completely free improvised, and other right. times they'd have movements. No arrangements. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes they'd be extraordinary. What's his name was Anthony Parker. I think his name was Anthony. Yeah, maybe he would write these amazing scores that would basically be drawings. Mm-hmm. People would you know improvise those kind of sections. It's it's. I'm not really doing it justice now because I'm so far out of it. I don't really remember most of the details, yeah. but it was it was incredibly intellectually stimulating and musically a really fascinating thing to be involved in. Yeah, because it's just like a self-feeding sort of... Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable. And they have a great jazz fest there. So I volunteered mm-hmm. in that and I got to see Jack DeJanet play and I forget who else. It's just It was an incredible place to be for, for that time. Well, that explains a lot in, in what I see in you, you know, the, this sympathetic awareness and, you know, you're listening to everything that's happening around you. And not everybody has that ability, you know. I mean, in, in the rock world especially, I mean, it's, it's you, not a skill you could be standing value. in a cubicle, yeah. you know, and mm. not being a paying, paying any attention to, I've seen it. Yeah. You know, people who aren't even listening to what's happening around them, you yep. know, and that's... Yeah, That's, it's definitely something you can you can tell when people have come from that that kind of world. They do have something else going on. They hit things differently. Yeah. Well, I remember you said to me one time you went to see a gig and and the drummer was just hitting like just blasting his drums. It's like Jesus, dude, play with the band. You know what are you hitting so hard right. for? And that yeah, I guess know. that comes from doing so many of those gigs where you're in these strange environments. You're having to play. You're playing really creative music, but you're playing it in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. So you have to. The band is expecting real creativity, but you can't be more than a whisper in volume right. and it, yeah. yeah and it doesn't make any sense to be more than that you yeah. know you have so you get to get used of, to it yeah. i have noticed here when I, I go at some of these gigs on some of these people i'm i'm thinking you're in a, a a brick room with wooden floors and a low ceiling why are you beating the ever-living shit out of your crash right. and why are you louder than everything on the yeah, stage you know I mean, it's bizarre lack of awareness but i guess it's if no one tells you about it you never know yeah i right. wouldn't you know i wouldn't i wouldn't have that attitude if i hadn't gone through the school and that's yeah, what I was, was going to say. You're, I mean, that's some pretty serious schooling, and and that you know helps that awareness. It was probably already intrinsic in your head. So now you're in, in you're yeah. not here yet, right? No, no, no. I have, this this is like there's still another like 15 years before. And I get so you're here. back to New Zealand. <laughs> well, then I went to Europe for a while, mm-hmm. and then Australia for a while, kind of just sort of wandering around and then I ended up back in Auckland which is where things began to kind of move more dramatically in terms of writing original music no I still wasn't doing that then I mean I had to do it at music school so I had Mm -hmm. written you know compositions and I had Mm -hmm. to I had to play piano to get through the school so I'd done a bit of that but back then when I got back to New Zealand it was I started playing with songwriters 
I still carried on, carried on doing a lot of jazz, but I was starting to get calls to play for pop stars out there, lo- using that term very loosely because it is New Zealand rather than here. It's a different world. And also electronica and things like that. So I got mm, really right. heavily into just trying anything I could. And there's a pretty healthy scene for that kind of thing out there. A lot of creative stuff and people actually can find an audience. Yeah, and you're yeah. making a name for yourself at that point. Yeah. Mm. Getting a lot of uh, a lot of session dates and yeah, awesome. and it's it's one of those things. It because it's a small place. I I I noticed that the guys that I was replacing, and then the guys that ended up replacing me as I got older, was it, it's it is a young person's game out there because, you know, there there are no older musicians really doing stuff mm-hmm. because there's no money in it. People move on and stop. Yeah, yeah. you can't afford to do yeah. it anymore. Yeah. And 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 the people that don't are the ones that have enough going on they probably they have their people that come with them so there are some older drummers who still work and things like that mm-hmm. but mostly it's young guys and 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 women like kind of doing what they're doing and they just bring their people with them so after mm. a while you know you don't get calls to do so many sessions because the people you were working with have either left the country or they've kind of moved into doing other things right. yeah. one of the big pop people i play with has her own tv show now yeah oh wow and she's doing a lot of other things not so much touring with her projects so even if i was there She's not doing any anywhere near the amount of touring and recording she mm-hmm. was ten years ago. So it's yeah. a young person's game. Yeah, yeah. and it part. sounds like it's very yeah. fluid, like it is anywhere. I mean, here yeah. in LA, you know, everything yeah. is. It's like that with most musical genres. I mean, yeah, it really is. But at least uh, over here, the place—if you have a niche, you can actually do something with your niche. Mm-hmm. True, because the country's big enough to handle it. There are people that you know they might have been making a lot of money, but they're still able to work. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So at what point does Cairo Knife Fight become a concept? Well, I moved to, after being around there for in New Zealand for a few years, maybe like, I don't know, six, seven, maybe, maybe it wasn't even that long. It feels like it was forever. I moved to Berlin for a while um, because there was a, a bunch of New Zealand bands I'd known that had gone there and done really, really well. So I just wanted to go there. And then I came back from there after a year or something like that. And that's when I formed this thing, maybe... Maybe 2006, 2005, 2006, I decided to make a solo record. I'd already made an EP of something, mm-hmm. and I decided to make a solo album. And that was the first thing that Karen and I was. It was actually a six-piece band. Yeah, I basically, I saw that. Which was it's a very odd-sounding band, too, uh-huh. looking back on it now. Um, and it didn't really go anywhere, and we made that record. It took me about two years to make it. And then I ran out of money to take that band on tour. So hmm. just told everyone that that's it. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm going to do this thing now. And I, I, had, I had this dream when the entire concept came to me. I woke up, wrote it all down. I thought I could loop things. Mm-hmm. I could play keyboard, bass, and drums if I had to at the same time. I could obviously do the singing still. And my guitarist would just get stereo and, a, and an octave pedal and play some bass as well. And there we go. He could start looping as well. Yeah. yeah. And that's exactly, and it's 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 a lot more technologically advanced now than it was then. But this, the the concept is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. That's and amazing to have that concept. Sorry to interrupt you, but th- back ten years ago, too, prior yeah. when you started, it, have that. Yeah, now nowadays idea. there are so many duos. Back then, there really was the black keys and the white stripes that I knew of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and now everyone's doing it because it's te- technically it's a lot easier to do with True. modern technology and there's less money now even then than there was then so people are definitely trying to minimize their on-stage setups well so talk about your uh talk about your rig because i i watched a video of uh or at least i saw a little bit of it uh, of you with dave friedman right mm-hmm. and he's helping you put together uh <coughs> yeah pretty serious rig well i had just kind of putting that into context um when I moved here, my guitarist from New Zealand didn't come with me. Mm-hmm. So I had to find someone else. And George Pahone Jr. was the guy that I found because he has a studio in the back garden of our house. And so I just got chatting to him. One oh, day. so that was like <laughs> serendipity. Yeah. And he, you know, he'd been obviously with the Black Eyed Peas and Fergie for 15, 16 years or something like that. And they'd just kind of gone on hiatus maybe two years before. Like they were kind of like, you know, we're not doing this so much. So he didn't have anything going on majorly occupying his time. So he wanted to join something new. And so he's come on board and he brings Dave Friedman with him because he's a Friedman endorser. Right. And so Dave is, is actually right now rebuilding our entire setup because George did make it a lot better sonically, mm-hmm. a lot more options, 
but we used gear that he'd had lying around, which means he, we were using gear that was designed for Black Eyed Peas level touring. So right. huge coffin boxes, basically, you know, massive things that are like up to my neck mm-hmm. right. that would stick all my gear. And it was just, we'd have to hire a U-Haul to do any gig. To do a gig at all. And his setup was enormous too, like five amps and a bass rig. And I had a bass rig and I had my stuff in this pedal board, which was overly big anyway, because I'd made it and this huge looping system with an SSL console and things like this that we'd had. So he's thinking you can just micro everything. Yeah, right? we've just trimmed everything down. Yeah. You know, he's doing some work for George on, um, you know, combining. He's actually customizing some some heads to to sort of contain two mm-hmm. heads in one, and he's giving him these new lightweight cabs and things. So the setup now will go down. We can fit it all in George's Yukon, and we can play anywhere. Yeah, that for, was and, trouble. And for those played. of you who uh, know what we're talking about and don't have even one Friedman, George has, I think, four at any wow. one time. Wow. Plus he's so, got the ones he doesn't use with us. The <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure he has more somewhere else. But anyway, yeah. George, yeah. good for you. You, know, all the Friedman, you take all the Friedmans, just hog them all. Yep. And being in a room with someone like Dave, he, he just, you, you explain to him what you're doing. And he just sort of laughs at you. It's like, why are you doing it like that? That's a really dumb idea. And he'll say, we should do it like this. Like, I'd never even conceived of that kind of idea. It's amazing. Because he's a, he's a legitimate um, technological genius. In yeah, this world, so, so, yeah. And, and obviously you guys have a synergy musically as well. That Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's really helped us. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's going to be great to do that because we've lugged that stuff around the world like we toured a couple of years ago in australia with this band carnival who are a little bit they're generally known as like australia's tool that that kind of Mm -hmm. that kind of band even though they don't necessarily like that comparison it's pretty apt i think they're and they're huge out there but you know we had like george was the point where he had to take the handles off his off his um uh cabs i mean off his heads inside their, their their cases just to get it just under the limit just to fit it in, that yeah. would yeah that the airlines would take. So he was unscrewing wow. those, putting them back on when we get there because we we'd managed to just squeeze it right the way down to right on the pound limit that they won't take any more on. So it's going to be good to get through those days. But you know the setup is, is exactly the same in in its general methodology as the one that we put together all those years ago overnight basically. That reminds me of a story. Carmine was telling me he uh, he was with Jeff Beck and and you know I guess it was Beck Bogart in a piece mm-hmm. or something like that. And he goes, yeah, we got this $20,000 gig in Japan, and we flew everything over there. All the gear, PA, the whole back line, gear, everything. And it cost us 30 <laughs> Yeah, you go down in, in members, you think that it's like going to be easier, but in some ways it's actually a lot harder. We had instant success, though, which was crazy for us. We had nothing going on, and then well, the first real gig that we got offered was opening for them, Crooked Vultures, mm-hmm. in two shows. So, you know, we did... We did, a, we did a couple of warm-up shows, so like the second and third show that we were doing were these stadium gigs and wow. yeah. arena gigs in New Zealand with John Paul Jones and Dave Grohl and these kind of things. It was amazing. Wow. That's great. Well, let's listen to Cairo Knife Fight right now. This is Reality Engine. So we were talking about uh, Friedman putting your rig together and everything, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious about how how your set goes. I mean, what different kinds of things are you doing aside from playing drums, singing, and 
triggering things and looping? Well, we're able to do, because of the setup we've got, we're able to really play some very different sounds. Like we have some things from uh, the original couple of EPs we did that were really sort of soundscaping atmospheric. Mm -hmm. That's a sound that we can now do better than ever, which is because we've obviously always been known for this kind of flamboyant kind of full-on noise, loud riffs and, and energy thing. But then there's a whole other side where we actually can play these kind of slower, more deep kind of ballady sort of things almost cool um and with the setup we've got we can layer down these things and then with the keyboard bass you get this huge droning thing underneath it's like there's a lot of stuff we can do there and then obviously there's things we open out to just take as long as they take and go where they go there's mm -hmm. some songs we always try to keep that you know obviously everyone tries to write songs that are coherent and concise but we we definitely want to keep an element of improvisation in it but just so I understand, are, so are these songs that you're starting with your rig mm -hmm. and then joining with the drums? <coughs> Sometimes, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what I want to get at, is how are you actually doing things as you're playing drums and, and yeah, everything that You're multitasking all the yeah, way through. Yeah, everything yeah. you can imagine is happening. Sometimes I'll play keyboard, bass, and drums at the same time, right. completely live. Sometimes I'll loop drums and play over the top of that. Sometimes I'll loop drums and just sing. Nice. Sometimes I'll loop everything and just sing and have bass and drum parts looped. And, and other times it'll be a completely live song where George is the only guy playing any bass, you know, with, with his, his guitar, which is split into different channels. Mm -hmm. And I'm just playing drums and singing. And he's just listening to you. You guys aren't headphoning at all, right? No, I mean, that's one of the things that George did do was he, he, added, he was able to add with me an in-ear mm -hmm. concept, which I it was always tricky to know how to do that unless we were going to go full noise in right. ears which is expensive and difficult. Yeah. We've kind of been able to create a version with my rig. I can basically plug into the desk so I can hear my loops. I don't have to, I can hear my vocals, which has made me a far better singer. And it makes it easier for a front of house engineer because they hate the fact that I'm a drummer singer. Yeah. Because within two or three feet of the, of the vocal mic yeah. are the worst possible things you could have. Yeah, cymbals. Just, just yeah. Everything. Yeah. So they like not having to have monitors causing even more problem with me. Mm -hmm. And we've, you know, we spent a long time investigating the, the best possible mic we could use for, um, uh, di you know, directing it towards my voice and not picking up other stuff. So we ended up with an uh, with an Audix mic, which is the best one we could find. So wow, it's, right it's got less bleed than anything else. Yeah. And George still uses monitors, but at least now I'm I'm able to hear because sometimes in the past, even at some big gigs we've done, I have to I've had to watch the flashing light on my looper to know where the, the loop is because he just gets disappeared in the noise. Yeah, there's yeah. no point in like waving at somebody and like, hey, I need, you know, yeah. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And it happens so fast. I'll set up a loop and then it's in there. And like the one, the song that um, you were mentioning before, Violence of Action, off, you mentioned talking about it off yeah. air, like that was one of the first songs that we, we did, uh, made a video for um, when we started making these bizarre videos that we like to make. That one... Once you start, you you can't stop. There's been some times where <laughs> right, the machines going. have melted down, and I've just had to carry on and try You're to going, figure yeah. it out. But once you do that first loop, if it's not right, well, that's just how it is. Yeah. Because you st I start singing right after I drop it. There's the point with us is we've always wanted it to be an artistically challenging experience as well as good songs and mm -hmm. like great riffs. So we don't want to lose any of that. But that does come with risk. Yeah, sure. Which it is does. fun. And that's something that you, you see some, I've seen some duos lately, not talking about anyone in particular, but some pretty big duos who I've noticed are now using tracks. And I sort of think, why would you do that if you're a two person? Why band? be a duo? If yeah. you can't do it just as hire as, the guys. Yeah, if you can't do it as a duo, don't do it as a duo. Yeah. Right. And, and in some ways it kind of reduces the impact of their instruments because there's so much of the music is, is being generated in the track mm -hmm. that their own thunderous drums and, guitar parts or whatever aren't so thunderous now yeah. no, no. the thing's already big and full and round without them doing anything mm -hmm. so yeah. I like that element with us that we don't use tracks at all we kind of just throw things in on the fly and yeah and you guys cover everything legitimately doesn't yeah. always work but that's part of the fun good uh, or bad yeah exactly yeah. I like that's, it uh -huh. that's what makes it exciting and fun yeah it's always and that's that's influenced how we write we, we don't do demos for songs because Part of the great, like some, the, some, the best moments of Kara and I fight's recorded career have been sometimes accidental. Like the very first song we ever released as a duo was a song called Big Face. We still play it at every gig we do now. It's this sort of crazy, it was a crazy like nine minute thing. 
the very beginning of that, the first thing anyone hears on the, the record of it is Aaron trying to clear his looper, but he can't make it work. So he's got the previous take stored in there, which is just noise, and he's stomping on it, trying to make it clear, and it's just doing these shocks of noise. That's how the whole song starts. Right. And so you can't really, you can't get those moments if you plan them. Mm. Things like that and guitars bleeding into drum loops. You get these unusual happy accidents where there'll be a guitar cycling around the drum loop, kind of filling in spaces. It's just these beautiful moments that you get when, you, when, you, when you're capturing loops from guitars and drums. Bleed and things like that are really important to us. That's why we don't ever do demos. We, we try to write and record at the same time. So you get those things. You could never fake them. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing I always hated was like beating the demo. Because, I mean, yeah. you know, you fall in love with it, it's perfect, it's everything you want, and then right. you try to re- reproduce, reproduce it. it, and it's just, it's Which never was, worked yeah, for me. Yeah. For some music, it, it works fine. If you're Tom Petty or something writing, a, you know, the, the classic American song, you can redo it again. Yeah, you can. But for something like we're doing, like some of the greatest moments of gigs we've had are when there's been this, some bizarre noise that George has done on his guitar that was accidental, but it's ended up in one of my loops. It just mm-hmm. pops up, it just plays the out. whole song. And it's just something that captures people's attention, and that's something right. that would drive you crazy if you were trying to build that. Right, and if, if it was a problem for you, but you guys embrace that yeah. and create, you know, just go with it. And yeah, that's... I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes it's absolutely awful. Mm-hmm. There'll be some feedback that, that occurs right when I'm making the loop, and I can do it, and I'm like, <laughs> that's in there now, and I'm not going to stop, but then there'll just be this thing that's, awful going through it but <laughs> you can't stop <laughs> yeah you gotta yeah. have the good with the yeah. bad if you're gonna enjoy yeah. the good stuff you gotta i love that i think I, I would imagine it'd be great and of course you know you're the only people in the audience that know anything about that right. well, for the most part you know yeah. yeah it's true has it always been a duel ever since i had that dream it has yeah yeah during the making of the first record that was when it sort of we we realized that Aaron wasn't really going to come with me on this this journey because his own life was heading in a different direction. He had a right. teenage daughter, which well, was just becoming teenager, twelve and I think she was twelve, turning thirteen. So it was like he didn't he couldn't really tour as much as I wanted to, and so that record ended up being seven or eight other writers on it, which means that it doesn't have quite the um, cohesiveness of the first two EPs or this most recent record. But that was a fun experience when I got to write with people like Mark Lanigan over mm. here and and some other really great people that no one's ever heard of um but it was trying i think i had about four different guitarists doing yeah. gigs during that time wow and i went to australia in 2014 to play and i uh my manager out there found me a guitarist and i met him three days out from the first gig and we just rehearsed for three days and oh wow did this whole tour which was a big tour for us mm-hmm. so that got a bit stressful until george finally came along that right. someone could yeah. be in the band properly because if half the band's changing all the time it's pretty challenging. Yeah. Well, it's a lot easier for you than putting together a four-piece band. That's bad enough. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true. It's a particular set of skills, though. I actually ended up buying the gear that people would need, the basic gear. I would buy an octave pedal and looper and stuff like that. Yeah, and, here. Use and switches. This. Yeah, and I'd just show up and give it to them, which actually was a pretty, pretty smart idea, looking back on it. So talk about uh, them Crooked Vultures. That was a fun experience, I'm sure. That was a really amazing maybe year and a bit because we did that. We got offered that. I don't, I don't know how, like, someone said something to someone. New Zealand's not a very big place. And so the promoter Frontier Touring put us forward. They picked us, I think, because it was something different than the other kind of options they were getting. And that was amazing. The first sound check, we had Dave Grohl, John Paul Jones, Josh Homme, and Alan Johannes watching. Oh, watching from, you guys, yeah. Like the side of stage. Yeah, just checking you guys out. And the techs were like, they don't normally do this because it's, which, you know, maybe they say that to everyone. But they say, we've been on tour with all these all these regular bands, they just wanted to see what you guys were actually doing. And then mm-hmm. they watched the set as well, both nights. Wow. And the sound check went well, so they were yeah. impressed. And it was really cool. Like it was our first major gigs as this duo. And it was crazy and bizarre. And we had technical problems that were astonishing. Like we had an earth hum that was louder than anything I could loop. So I'd, I'd do a loop and you'd hear like... It was just overriding. Drums in the background, but a... Yeah. And luckily... Because we were, Darren and I were both so well known as musicians, we knew all the crew we were working with already. So they were, you know, they spent all the way up to doors fixing it with it. <laughs> I mean, if we'd, if we'd just been a band no one had heard of, they would have just said, well, that's your problem. But they fixed it. <laughs> so that was incredible. And then not long after that, the Foo Fighters came back to New Zealand and they picked us for that one too. Yeah. And we played, it was about 40,000 people, Western Springs, the major 
kind of outdoor arena there. Most of them fans of yours. Well, enough of them. There was certainly enough yeah. there. And we filmed one of the songs, man. It's actually up on online. Nice. Pretty amazing. That was with that was the tour they came out with Tenacious D and that band fucked up. You know that band? I think I've heard the name and I think yeah, it was just those two bands and us. And then Queens of the Stone Age came not long after that and they got us to do that tour, but that was a tour when we did one night in Auckland and then the Christchurch earthquake happened mm. basically the next oh. day. So the rest of the tour oh, got cancelled. Wow. We were actually sitting on the tarmac at the airport when it went off. Oh, wow. my goodness. So that changed everything. But there was that run there where <coughs> we did the Foo Fighters twice, Queens and Dem Crooker Vultures. It was an incredible period. And, you know, if we'd been able to kick on, things would certainly have been different. I mean, we came over here and did South By mm-hmm. and actually got into discussions with that uh, with the label Cook and Vinyl in, in Europe, who at that point were one of the major indie success stories. They'd, they'd just done the Prodigy's comeback record, which has sold really well, and they were really keen for us. But it just didn't work out with Aaron and I. We just didn't get it together. To We were actually going to Wales to record the record, and then we had a producer in England waiting for us. He, he was in New Zealand, actually. He was in England. He was going to drive to Wales with us. We were going to record this record, then we were going to finish it, go down to uh, The Great Escape, that festival in Brighton play and Cook and Vinyl were going to come see us there and then we were going to sign this deal with them they were going to take this record and it was all going to be blah 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 the rest is history but we didn't get on the plane for reasons that were outside of my control so that that kind of changed everything yeah no kidding and you know that slowed everything down but you know you don't stop you just roll with it and carry on you still keep in touch with Dave Grohl? nah I mean it's like we actually spent more time with Josh than anyone oh. else. Like we spent a, a couple of nights with him, and that was really great. And he was really lovely, and he took the time to be really good to us. And yeah. you know, I messaged the management when we got over here, and there was, you know, I tried to actually see John Paul Jones when I came out the first time on a writing trip, but he was, it was classic. He was in Slovenia or something writing an opera. <laughs> the message I got back, and I think that label Records Records, which was who we had as a contact, I think they've folded that up. So. Oh. I actually have stayed in contact with Alan Johannes, yeah. who was a real find for me. Like I, I go and see him play a little bit here, and obviously he's connected to um, to us through Tilly because he knows Tilly well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've stayed in contact with him, and you know, haven't really got a chance to see him that much. But Dave Grohl's an awfully famous man, meets yeah. a lot of people, so you'd have to is. probably do more than four or five gigs over a year yeah <laughs> he seems just to be very accessible out here you know, i think you know he's hearing about popping up at paladinos that's or his wherever, thing yeah you know? i mean he's you know there's no well, george knows or... him um like knows him just if they see each other they, they chat i think because obviously they were on a lot of those festivals the peas and, and yeah, food exactly. fighters at those times and i feel like if i did run into him and put two and two together for him he'd remember of course mm-hmm. and that you know probably be a nice chat but shit you know he meets a lot of people a lot of musicians. Yeah. So I'm curious about <clears throat> touring New Zealand mm. because when Very I think of New Zealand, yeah, I mean, that could be a one city stop <laughs> if you're not, well, you know, aware. But there's a huge folk scene in New Zealand. We have some incredibly talented, like modern folk and kind of modern sort of um, dark kind of soul roots kind of music. Mm-hmm. And they can tour throughout the country. They can do 30 gigs in these sort of small little country towns and things like that. A band like us, not so much. We probably could have done more than we did, but we just basically stuck to the main scene. It's like four shows. You know, you can do 40 or 50 gigs in a row. But know, when like, a band like Foo Fighters comes to New Zealand, I mean, are they... Yeah, they do, do they one do, or two. They do one or two, okay. Queens were doing three, Auckland, yeah. London, Christchurch. Those are usually the... Before the earthquake, Auckland, London, Christchurch was pretty common, but if you're really big, these days, like Adele just did, I think, four nights at one of our stadiums. Right. So people just come to her. But it's not like there's cities that I haven't heard of that these people no, are hitting. No, I mean, people don't bother with anywhere else because you know, why would you bother? The, the country will you. come to them, you know. Yeah. I think Bruno Mars is doing four shows at, at one of our, our premier arena. So there's just no point going anywhere else. Why yeah, move your production? Okay. It's a small country and it's relatively cheap to fly around. Right. Is there one big festival that New Zealand has? We actually have a really, really healthy um, festival culture. I guess mostly because we, we New Zealand is, is, is an island nation. We're islanders. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Tongans, Samoans, obviously Māori and other Pacific Islanders there. So we have a really huge reggae and roots culture. Yeah. So a lot of our New Zealand festivals are really heavily centered around roots, reggae, and also um, electronica. 
And we have some incredible bands, um, Catch a Fire, Cora, Shapeshifter, these bands that are extraordinary live acts. But it's not, there's fewer opportunities for rock bands like us. But there's a really healthy festival scene. And we actually have one festival that sells out every year. It's about eighteen to 20,000 tickets sell out for it. And it's entirely New Zealand music. It's called Homegrown. So it's it's 100% New Zealand stuff, and it's it's pretty amazing to conceive that we can do that down there. Yeah, right. And the other festivals, we did we did have a big day out run. You know the big day out? I've heard the name. Yeah, a huge Australian yeah. festival. We had it would do like Sydney and Perth and a few yeah. other places in Australia, and bands would go down there, like the biggest bands in the world. It was one of those festivals. You know, right. one of the years that we played in Auckland, um, the headliners were that the last three bands I watched were Lily Allen, then the Mars Volta and then Muse in one of the big arenas. They would come down and the two guys from Australia who ran it would put them all on a plane and fly the entire production around Australia. So that's how George got to meet the Mars Volta guys and things like that because they'd all be on a plane together for a week. Mm -hmm. But that folded up. So we don't have the massive international festival now that we used to have, but we we don't don't seem to need it. Just backtracking a little bit, how do people get from island to island? Is there's it a close ferry. enough to ferry? Okay. Yeah, yeah, there's a ferry. It takes about three hours, I think. If I oh, it's a three-hour ferry. Wow, yeah, because that's what ferry. I thought. That straight is maybe, pretty wide. Maybe it is. That's maybe it's a ferry ride. And it's, you know, you, cars and stuff go on it. Yeah. But right. you just fly. I mean, Auckland to Christchurch, which is a massive chunk of the country, is, is about an hour 20. Hour 20, yeah. So. What we call puddle jumpers. Yeah. Yeah, it's nothing. You yeah. Know? And $70, $80 here, right? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't take long. Like, I've driven from Christchurch to Auckland, and I think it was probably about 20-something hours. But there isn't a bridge or anything like that. No, you just get on the ferry with your car and then get off the other side and drive. It's relatively narrow and relatively long for an island. And there's three islands. There's another one at the bottom, Stewart Island, tiny little place, which is an extraordinary kind of prehistoric situation down there, really. (laughs) Like, it's amazing. There's there's a few, I think a few thousand people live there, but you can go there and... uh, it's basically untouched sort of forest and the kind of wow. stuff that Peter Jackson looks for, right? When it's pretty filming. amazing down there. The ferry down there, that's one of, uh, that's Fovo Strait, I believe it is. I think it's Fovo. I get my, get the straits mixed up. That one is one of the roughest, most dangerous water passages, I think in the world. Like it's, oh, it's pretty crazy because it's obviously right down the bottom heading towards the underside of the globe. You know? Yeah, totally. Like wow. Cape of Good Hope. I mean, that's, it's not, you know, it's forest. not like going around the horn or anything, but right. it's, it's, I've taken that ferry. It's, pretty like um, nauseating I gotta <laughs> but it's an amazing place to go I've, gone, I've been there on holiday and I've, I've toured down there which is pretty remarkable it's because it's, it's it's, the rest of the country sort of forgets it's there it wouldn't work for me I get seasick going to Catalina yeah so. <laughs> I would imagine I would get pretty seasick too we're here with Nick Gaffney from Cairo Knife Fight this is Res Lord oh, the time has Welcome to the Scratch Cast. We're back with Nick Gaffney from Cairo Night Fight and Santa Barbara with mm. your wonderful, mm-hmm. beautiful, talented wife, Cassie. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was uh, Cass's thing. She put it together actually with another guy from New Zealand too, a dude I used to be in quite a famous New Zealand band like years ago. I joined his band when they were quite popular and he's playing bass with us. He's a guitarist. Okay. That's the guy that I saw at yeah. the gig. Yeah, right on. So he's quite well known in New Zealand, but we didn't. This band didn't exist back there. Good little unit, man. You guys, wow. I had a great time listening to you guys. More of a 
pop centric sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's Cass's thing. She's a great songwriter. She was playing electric guitar for the first time in this band, so she's really coming out of her shell with how it works. This is pretty challenging for someone who's played a bit of acoustic guitar. Yeah. Well, she looked very comfortable at the gig I saw. Yeah, she's running with it pretty well, and she's got so much room. There's no one else competing with her with guitar. She just right. does whatever the hell she likes. Mm-hmm. She can't really do anything wrong, to be honest, because it doesn't matter what she does. If something goes wrong at a gig, she can just not play. Yeah, and no one's standing on her toes. Yeah, and and she's got a, an amazing talent like you helping her. So does she come up with the the basic structure of, of what she wants to do? Some of and it, yeah. You modify it, or sometimes she she'll write an entire thing. Mm-hmm. Other times it'll just be a riff she's got, and she doesn't write a lot of lyrics a lot of the time. So she's actually been getting some poems from one of her work colleagues, who's nice. a um, he's an artist a painter. And he had a whole lot of poems that he'd written. And she just, she's really great at taking something like that and putting it to music yeah. really quickly. Wow. I love that. I love it's it. It's quite a remarkable thing. It's not something I ever do because yeah. I, I write it all myself in that way. And I definitely don't write words first. It doesn't work that way with mm-hmm, me at right. all. But she's got a real gift at that. That's awesome. And she started to write a lot more of her own, her own words now too. So I guess the first couple of EPs we've made, every writing concept has been utilized in there some from her writing the whole thing to the band doing it together and i'm trying to remember do you guys have one in the can right now yeah we made an ep that was released last year and then there's another one now which was in video coming out in july oh good single and video there's another half dozen songs i think that are ready to be mixed any uh nice tours or events planned she's got a gig i think it's the 21st of july maybe at the hi-hat i think it's going to be a single okay. release for that band it's yes yeah, she's actually we've been playing a lot in la which has been great she's really you know she just took it upon herself to get all this going and we've played all over the, the city we play most months there's there's one or two things going on which is pretty remarkable for a band. you know she didn't know anyone when she started right. this band right and so she just pretty much handles the Santa Barbara thing. You're busy with Cairo and I fight. Yeah, I do what she needs me to do. Like if she yeah. needs something, you know, written or someone followed up on, I do it. But yeah, it's as you guys, you know, know it's always better to have one person directing. Yeah, you know, traffic on yeah, things it makes like this. It's a lot easier, a lot less yeah. headaches. Well, I'm looking forward to getting back together with you and Tilly. I'm looking forward to seeing Santa Barbara again, mm. and uh, certainly my yeah. first time seeing Cairo and I fight will be. Yeah, I didn't great. know that. In Santa Barbara. I think we're That'd playing in, in, in July. Knife Here? Fights. Yeah, in Los we're, we're playing. There's a, a band actually that Santa Barbara have played with called The Absurd. We've played a bunch of gigs with them, and, and it was a gig that we couldn't do. So Knife Fight's doing it with them at the Silver Lake Lounge. I'll have to make a date. Yeah, consider me there. I'll, yeah. get, I'll actually get the date. So if anyone is listening, because it, it is. Yeah, let's get the date out there. At the Silver Lake Lounge. July 6th. July 6th. It's a Thursday at the Silver Lake night. Lounge, Cairo Knife Fight. Yeah. I will be there. Four other bands, I think. One from San Fran, I think. I'll be there as well. That'd be fun. I'll yeah. let you know. Probably late start, though, for us, probably. With oh, last, no. With it band. won't be too late to see Cairo You don't play night my night. favorite? Yeah, we always play that one. Awesome. Definitely always play the violence of action. And particularly, like, Friedman's business partner, Rob, who's closely involved with us now, he uh, demands that song gets played. <laughs> he's told That's me he's great. Like, you're never allowed to not play it. <laughs> there are some points when I'm playing it thinking to myself, I've been playing this song for so many years. <laughs> and it's not like I'm Tom York playing Creep yeah. right? at Reading. <laughs> or Deep Purple playing Smoke on the Water. Yeah. yeah. I'm not playing it to 30,000 people going crazy. Right. I'm, I'm playing it to no one. <laughs> I'm playing know. it for you. I'll go crazy. Yeah, I mean, I will. <laughs> at least that'll be fun having some people there. But most of the gigs that we do haven't, have, you know, some of the touring we've done has been good, but most of the gigs we do are not, you know, huge fan bases. So you're playing some of these old songs going, man, <laughs> there's meant to be a reason why I'm still playing this because there yep. are people who want to hear it, but yeah. there's no one here. <laughs> Which is difficult when you move to a new country, though. Well, that will change by the time we get to the gigs. So thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Craig, yeah, for Thank you. Hanging. Good to see you again, Nick. Yes. And uh, we're going to go out on a Cairo Knife Fight song. Thank you for listening. This is Mixueta saying good night, good day, good afternoon, wherever you are. Bye.
Scratchcast was produced and engineered by Mick Sueda at Red Cake Digital in Los Angeles, California. Find us at iTunes, SoundCloud, and on Facebook. <laughs>